You are listening to Living with Corona, Bridging the Gaps, a podcast that aims to initiate a larger global conversation about the current pandemic and address the questions we feel have largely been left unanswered. Our goal is to address the questions and concerns we have today by listening to the experiences of others. Our efforts and intentions are honest, with the objective being to build an understanding between people that bridges continents and connects our world. Listen in, speak up, and be heard. that's going to ignite a fire that, you know, a hundred years from now, we look at racism as something of the past, you know. I, I grew up learning, hey, keep your hands on the steering wheel, have your stuff already ready, be respectful, be polite, be succinct, and, and comply. Don't, don't do anything that's going to get you shot. It was such an intense experience, and I think it just, you know, it's illustrative of, like, how intensely emotional this is for every single American. Following the highly public and visual murders and lynching of Black lives in the recent months, we decided to take a break to reflect on the present and its inextricable connection to the past. We wanted to acknowledge the loss of lives and the divisions that run deep within our society and educate ourselves so we are better equipped to make the future one which sees the today as an abomination. The increase in diversity and mobilization of Black Lives Matter and other movements against systems of injustice and oppression have led many to examine how and where they fit in during this new age of activism. Going forward, it is our goal as hosts of this podcast to give the long overdue space to Black, Indigenous, and people of color's thoughts, feelings, and voices. All of us have a responsibility, a duty, to examine ourselves and our spheres of influence. Three white women are the hosts of this podcast, but from here on out, we aim more strongly than ever to simply be the microphone for black voices to reverberate around the world. Everything, including COVID-19, concerns race, and it requires us all to speak about and against injustice. Until all are seen as human and worthy of value, respect, dignity, recognition, celebration, and love. The words we, Amy, Ina, and Teresa speak are hollow. No lives matter until Black lives matter. Living with Corona, Bridging the Gaps, will continue to make the most conscious, intentional, and thoughtful efforts to stand as allies with our Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. Will you join us? Keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long.
Ronnie Allen is a 24-year-old singer and songwriter who, in addition to performing solo, is a member of the Grammy Award-winning group Sounds of Blackness. The group proclaims the music, culture, and history of African Americans to audiences all over the world. There's no better way for me to describe this awe-inspiring group than to use their own words as found on their website. From jazz and blues to rock and roll, R&B, gospel, spirituals, hip-hop, reggae, and soul, we color each and every sound of blackness with uplifting messages of hope, unity, love, and peace for all humankind, and we work passionately to achieve it. I've known Ronnie for about seven years. I always hold our conversations dear and walk away from them inspired. He aims to be part of something that makes people feel. He wants people to feel a sense of urgency and purpose. He says it is his duty, not only as an artist, but as a black man and a human being. For him and all of us, music is healing. And that was the main mission when a few weeks ago, they performed for Mothers of the Sun. So for example, um, I sing with a group called Sounds of Blackness, right? Literally on Saturday, we sang for Mothers of the Slam. We sang to maybe 150 families, right? People who have, who have lost their children, maybe even like their only child to lose brutality. At the end of our set, we sang uh, a spiritual called Hold On, just a little while long. And as we were singing it, there was one mother in particular. I mean, and when I say she was sobbing, like I, I saw her out the corner of my eye. And after we got done singing, I, I went down and I hugged her and I held her. And, and, she, and she literally said to me, they took my baby. He was 27 years old. And he was my only child. And I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine losing your only flesh and blood like that. Like, I, 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 I had to walk off. I had to walk off stage during our meet and greet because I, I had to just cry. Like, I, I, it's crazy to think that over 400 years, you know what I mean? A culture that can be so adored, yet its people and descendants are so undervalued. How do you, how do you? There's no, there's no, I don't, I don't think there's any positive way to feel when you're staring a mother in her face and she is sobbing and holding you as if she, you are her own. I'm an only child and I can't even think to imagine what my mother would go through if I were to be, like, I hate to wonder if I'm next, you know what I mean? In terms of that feeling, I think, I think it more, more than anything, the, the, the feeling is uh, a feeling of reinforcement to, to keep to keep pushing you know what i mean to keep pushing keep fighting because this and as much as i hate to say it but this won't end with George Floyd. it won't edgar kundi is a 23 year old first generation cameroonian african-american man he lives in minneapolis minnesota and after graduating from the university of eau claire wisconsin last may with a degree in business and entrepreneurship has partaken in a variety of endeavors he started his own digital marketing agency at 22. in addition to this impressive feat he has helped create an ethically conscious cbd company helps people find their sense of security with farmers insurance and works long hours for a moving company Edgar's overreaching goal that drives everything he does is to create generational wealth. Wealth that can be shared in use for the betterment of this world and humanity. 
Despite his constant and tireless efforts to assert his worth and inherent dignity to society, Edgar described very candidly how the systems of oppression have affected him. You know, George Floyd, how, how has these events affected you? Look, I'm going to be real with you. The day it happened, I saw the video and it was so hard for me to hit play. But I knew being a black man in America, I needed to see the I needed to see it for myself. And I remember seeing the video and it was it was it was as if this cop was stepping on not only his neck, but basically every black man's neck in the U.S. I felt I, I couldn't breathe watching the video. I couldn't. It was like my heart was stopping and seeing a man cry out for that long and just knowing, knowing that doesn't matter what he says or what he does, that he's going to lose his life. It was it was so hard to see. Ronnie echoed much of what Edgar had to say. As much as I hate to say it, this didn't surprise me. Like a man really sat on this man's neck for eight minutes, 48 seconds, you know, 46 seconds. It, but it didn't surprise me. So in terms of reaction, I didn't have much of one because as far as I know, this is reality. It's hard to have a reaction when you see it over and over and over and over and the people surrounding you justify it. You see what I'm saying? And that, if he wasn't, if he wasn't in a hoodie buying Skittles, and you know what I mean? Like, if he wasn't, if she wasn't resisting, if, if she wasn't sleeping in her bed, you know what I mean? Like, if she would, if they weren't in black, they wouldn't be dead. It's hard for me to have a reaction because all I can ever wonder is if I'm next. I I grew up learning, hey, keep your hands on the steering wheel, have yourself already ready, be respectful, be polite, be succinct, and, and comply. Don't, don't do anything that's going to get you shot. But it's just like, my presence is enough to warrant suspicion alone. Teresa, Amy, and I have never even felt a small ounce of the fear Ronnie and Edgar are talking about. The fear and trauma that has been passed on from generation to generation. We have been born into and maintain systems of oppression and violence. They experience it. A lot of these individuals are racist, but I think there's a sense of ignorance just because, you know, they don't know the cultural differences, you know, that I, I guess they don't, they don't understand the cultural di differences that we have. So it's more so just explaining to people, you know, this is why we feel the way we do. You know, this is how it all started 400 years ago during slavery. This is how it's transcending in its today's world. Like not a lot of people really knew that. And now you're seeing a lot more individuals that are white and even other minorities too, understanding our culture. And it just, it, there's a sense of power that, like I said, I feel from that because it's like, finally you get to know who, I am and who we are as a people. Throughout this interview, Edgar pointed out the countless ways black people have to try and prove they are an asset to society. I am so outraged that it even needs to be brought up. Throughout his life, several people have come to him and the group he co-founded at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, the Black Male Empowerment Group, to ask for help in self-improvement. My place is to share information at the end of the day. My place is to give people a voice that don't have a voice. My place is to uplift those who have constantly been pushed down their whole lives. You know, it's a sense of knowing that we're at 
a turning point and it's either you're on the wrong side or the right side and i know that i'm on the right side of what is going on in the world right now it was important for us to ask Edgar and Ronnie how they personally identify themselves or the ways in which their identities have been decided for them throughout their lives. We would like to clearly state, these two men were not asked and should never be asked to speak as a spokesperson on behalf of the entire black community. That line of thinking is incredibly unproductive and harmful. We were speaking to them as individuals, which is the most important source of education and growth. Individual stories and experiences make up the collective. So that's what bridging the gaps means to us. Finding and hearing those individual stories and experiences and perspectives to inform ourselves and each other. Individuality is of paramount importance, and we hope through the conversations in this episodes and the countless others to come, we get to know, develop, and sustain relationships with all those who we talk to. There are fractures that both Ronnie and Edgar discussed within the Black community and how passionately they feel about unifying their diaspora. You know, obviously being a first generation, I have very strong ties to Africa itself. Both my parents are from Cameroon, which is in West Africa. Um, so that means basically all my family is African. So, um, you know, I've had to kind of assimilate in a sense, just understanding the African-American culture, even though I was born in it. I, I'm not going to lie. There was I felt sort of a distance between it. Um, through my African culture and my African-American culture, you know, and, you know, that's why I've pushed for so many initiatives to kind of connect it to, to our diaspora and, you know, have African-Americans understand the African part of being African-American, you know, and really get back to, you know, building our home and understanding our, our original culture. I personally just think there needs to be an understanding of each culture so we can connect. And I don't want to sit here and say that that's the case for everybody. Obviously, African being African-American and African are connected. I just personally seeing from my standpoint of being both and being a first generation here, I just want to see a, a, a stronger sense of unity between those two. Both Edgar and Ronnie spoke about code switching, a term which is defined by the National Public Radio as the practice of shifting the languages you use or the way you express yourself in your conversations. There are many different motivations for code switching, but some of us do not, or have not needed to, do it as consciously as others. The two men described how the constant need to code switch and exist between identities is exhausting. Has he ever <laughs> tried to change the vernacular to fit in with his black peers, you know what I mean? Because I know I certainly have. I know I certainly have. You know what I mean? Every time, you know what I mean? I, I enter a room, like, I'm constantly code switching. Um, I'll say, oh, how's it going, Marcus? You know what I mean? What's good? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, and as unfortunate as it is, I ha I feel I have no middle ground because <laughs> you try and create relationships with other black people, but you don't quite fit in. And then you try and create relationships with white people, but you don't quite fit in. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's hard to feel that you as an individual are not enough, no matter what circles you come. That's a, a, a constant point of uh, stress and, and, and turmoil, at least in my own life, I know, just being a, a Black individual. It's not a lack of value in yourself, you know, but until society is placing that same value, you can't, you can't 
no one, one person can stand alone and sustain that when everything else is, you know, beating you down. Even my own identity gets somewhat stripped away from me. Like for the longest time, people were like, oh, you're an Oreo. You're not really black. You don't talk black. Like, you know what I mean? Because I didn't, I didn't utilize a vernacular to its fullest, right? Even that, you know what I mean? And granted, these aren't authority figures. These are my peers. You know what I mean? What you mean I'm not really black? You know what I mean? Like, I was born black. My birth certificate says so. Like, unless you got some vicious bleach, like, I'm black black. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's no change in that. You know what I mean? But, and I mean, every day, like, oh, you're just an Oreo. Like, oh, you're not really black. You're the whitest black guy I've ever met. I'm like, how does that work? Like, how can you act? Eventually, I kind of realized, I was like, okay, your, your perspective or your perception of normalcy is middle-aged white man. And because I speak in a certain manner, you think that... And it, and, and sometimes it'd be like, you think that I'm an exception from my race. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I get that. Because no matter the lengths we go, there will always be a target on our backs so long as we have the systems that we have. If they stay in place. This episode means a lot to me personally because our interviewees are all people I hold very close to my heart. Ronnie and I found friendship through music many years ago. Edgar is my boyfriend, who I support, respect, value, and love beyond words. And our third interviewee has been a source of inspiration for me since I met her. Bella Javidon is a 24-year-old who currently lives, works, and studies in Washington, D.C. While she works as the digital content assistant at the Arab Gulf State Institute, she is simultaneously working towards her master's degree in international affairs. Human rights, conflict resolution, and social justice have been the focal points of her undergraduate and graduate careers. She has applied and utilized her education, going abroad to study and conduct research in Jordan, Turkey, Jerusalem, Rwanda, and Algeria. She says that these experiences have compounded a responsibility in her to fight racial injustice in her own home and abroad. As an Iranian-American, Bella understands the delicate balance that people of color are forced to find between their existences and how your identity can constantly shift depending on the space. Right now, Bella is passionately committed to standing quite literally at the front lines of the protests in Washington, D.C. I was at Lafayette Park the day that Trump came out to take a picture in front of the church. and, you know, like being at, at a protest, like I'm obviously I'm, I'm Middle Eastern American, but in a black space, I understand that I'm I'm white. And um, I think that it, and I mean, from what I've seen, from what I've noticed and like what I've experienced, it is extremely beneficial to have white bodies in the front. Um, so like it, at the line of where the military police are, because right. they just genuinely tend like from what I've truly seen with my eyes they are less aggressive if there are white people in the front Mm -hmm. um so that's why i kind of made it that was that's where i felt most useful um so that's where i was and they you know that day they started kind of coming up slowly and people were being very peaceful and then they came right up to us and i was so afraid like everyone started crying like people in the front started crying because everyone was so scared um, and then autumn, like out of nowhere, there was nothing that prompted this, but they just started pushing and spraying, um, just right in your face. Like they were, we were like nose to nose with these, the military police and they started just attacking the crowd. 
um, and shooting rubber bullets at people. And, um, you know, it just became insane. And uh, everyone started running and they cleared the square. Nobody knew why this was happening. Everyone was so confused. And then, like, we hear on the news, Trump came out to take a picture. And that's why we got truly attacked by our own police, by our own military that we pay for. Bella talked about her time in all these different countries, working and studying in different capacities, and explained that a huge takeaway for her was how problematic the issue of misinformation is, and how this misinformation is spread and weaponized as a tool for the military-industrial complex, as well as the justice system in the United States. Yeah, and I think that that's super interesting that you bring that up, because it's, it's like that whole issue of not contextualizing is so harmful in Mm -hmm. terms of, you know, spreading the misinformation and spreading ignorance and, you know, um, promoting hatred where, Mm -hmm. you know, there, there should be none. There's basis for none. I think that too often we don't put, you know, names to faces or even like faces to people. Um, and that's, that's what can like make us feel very, uh, distant from one another and distant Mm -hmm. from, and discouraged with how to improve upon it. I had many white individuals that, many many white friends reach out to me just to know how I was doing. And that meant the world to me, to know that people are actually caring. I mean, allyship for me is like, I mean, just like what you said is handing over the microphone forever to black voices. I mean, for me, like how because everybody is participating in their own way, in their ways where they, you know, feel comfortable. Um, Obviously, my where I feel like the most useful ally is just standing at the front wherever the police are, like standing, like being that barrier, a physical barrier um, is just where I think that I, for some reason, you know, need to be to, to be supportive. Also just, you know, saturating my own social media with, with only content having to do with the movement. Um, and then, you know, my, so my family's Iranian and I, I have a lot of, um, Iranian activists, like Iranian American activists that I follow who are all supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. And they've released, you know, kind of like worksheets about um, Iranians and anti-blackness and how that is super rampant, rampant in like Iranian American um, rhetoric and Iranian rhetoric. And so like they put together these worksheets and infographics. And so I've just been kind of sending those along to you know, my extended family. And that obviously upsets people. Like, I mean, just speaking from Iranians, they are very proud people. They are very, at times, elitist people. Um, but, you know, they they definitely have a, have a history of racism. And I think just having, like, being loud within my own family about this issue is where I feel extremely useful and where I feel like I'm an ally as well. Um, and I mean, yeah, just like having those those talks with both sides of my family um, is is difficult, but it's very necessary. Um, and I mean, I guess just tr- 
trying. It's so hard when you want to have these conversations like with friends or family um, and dealing, you know, with white fragility. I still Mm -hmm. haven't found a way to kind of get around that. Like I've heard people say horrific things in that in the context of white fragility, like being like, you know, if you try to correct them on something or try to try to educate someone on something, they're like, why are you like berating people? Like what you saw on my Facebook post, that guy who was like, um, you're sounding like you're berating people who are uneducated, reword this. And I'm like, it is not my job to make white people feel better about their oppression against black people. Like I have nothing to do with that. I'm sharing knowledge and you can accept it or you can't. But, you know, it's it's things like that. Like I've had people say, um, you know, oh, I'm just a terrible white person, aren't I? I'm just the white devil. Or I'm, you know, I heard someone say that, like, oh, I'm just, you know, Mr. Jim Crow, aren't I? Or, you know, just crazy, crazy things that you would never expect to hear from people close to you. And you're like, oh, my God, the, this is just everyone's this is that fragility that everyone has been, you know, talking about for so long. It's actually manifesting in a super real and honestly really scary way that this is what I've been surrounded by my entire life. And um, it just makes it that much more real for me. And especially, you know, as a Minnesotan, this all started in, well, it didn't start, but obviously George Floyd was murdered in Minnesota. um, So that, just all of all of that has made this such a huge issue for me personally. And um, it's why I've been really, I guess, just loud in my own um, conversations. And that has I've definitely seen that be upsetting to people. But, you know, that is allyship. Like, doesn't matter how anybody is going to think about you. Like, you know, you're doing the right thing. Um, Absolutely. Because that's at the, that's at the root of it is it's not, it's not about you. Yeah. You're, you know, you're using yourself and your sphere of influence, you know, to try to give voice to the voices that have been silenced for so long. Yeah. And so I think that's like, that is a really upsetting thing. And it's surprising how explicitly and aggressively it comes out. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I just think it's really funny. The, the, the amount of people, the amount of white people that are trying to prove or are making the proclamation, I'm not racist. Totally. How would you know? Like that is, that's not for you to determine. Right. Because you aren't, you aren't the one who would be experiencing any sort of racist action or speech or beliefs or, you know, sort of rhetoric. Like you wouldn't right. be experiencing at the hands of yourself. So yeah. like for and people so- to be proclaiming, you know, I'm not racist. Like, you know, I think that that's what's so important. Um, like you said, in terms of, of allyship is it's not enough, you know, which has been said Mm -hmm. time and time again, it's not enough to say, I'm not racist. Like you need to actively be participating in anti-racism. 
It is an important question to ask ourselves. How do I see myself fitting in and contributing to this movement? We posted the same question to our interviewees who offer their own uniquely unifying perspectives to what needs to be done next. Not only by Black, Indigenous, and people of color, but the entire white community that upholds and sustains racist violence and oppressive systems. My place is to not only share the information with, you know, people that are living right now, but make sure that it transcends into the individuals that are coming after us. What's so funny also, like this, this conversation just reminded me of, you know, that video of like all these white celebrities being like, I'm done letting these racist jokes slide. I'm done, blah, blah, blah. I'm done being racist. I'm done listening to racist rhetoric. And it was like, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, this, the fact that you created this video is completely antithetical to the entire movement. Like using your platform, mm-hmm. not as a space for black voices to explain what is going on or to like, just to, just to even give them a platform to say anything. You're using it to let yourself say, oh, I'm done being racist, <laughs> high five. And it's like, I, I, I there's no usefulness in anything like that ever it's like that's what is also very upsetting for me that it it just like seeing um white celebrities trying to show that they're allies by not lending their platform to black voices that doesn't make sense to me um and that is something that has definitely upset me but like another like in the same just something really useful kind of a side note that Uh, my roommate is doing she put together this is really cute she put together a book club for her and all of her white friends and their white mothers and they're all going to be reading like Angela Davis and the new Jim Crow like they're going to be reading all of these books by like amazing black authors to you know educate their families and to have conversations and like that is allyship and that is not stealing you know light away from um, black voices. That is like teaching people how to hand over that microphone, you know, and that I think is useful and what everyone should be doing. I think Ronnie reiterated that same point in a very poignant way. The issue that we're facing right now in terms of allyship and education and how people are finding a space within Black Lives Matter. Honestly, I, I think... And look, this this and this is just how I, how I thoroughly feel about any situation that requires growth, right? Just in general, any step forward is a step forward, right? To me, there has been no hindrance because protests, like there's no right way to protest, like like we're we're literally fighting against a system not not broken. I hate when people say it's broken. It was not built for us. You know what I mean? So there has been no hindrance. It's just people finding solutions. We've only moved forward, and that's all we can continue to do and keep momentum up. Um, people, I, in, in, like I said, in my humble opinion, unless <laughs> there can't be really a hindrance unless some sort of opposing force is doing it, because we're doing all we can to move forward. We're, I mean, and, and it's a blessing, you know, like, we're educating, we're having these protests, we're having these rallies. And, and you know, I'm ecstatic 
because people are educating themselves about Juneteenth. You know what I mean? Like, even as a black man, right? I knew what Juneteenth was, but I didn't even know the extent of it, right? Like, it's educating me as well, and it drives me to keep pushing forward. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I think you, you have a, a really good point where we, there has, there does have to be room for kindness and, and allowing people to grow um, on, on the other hand, right? As long as, I figure like this, as long as there is a willingness to learn and grow and apply, because here's the thing, you can learn all you want and never apply the information. And that's stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's point blank, like, and in my opinion, right, if you're not attempting to apply it, that's bullshit. You're a racist. <laughs> like, if that's just me. I'm like, you can learn about my history. You can spit facts at me all day. Shit, I don't even know. But if you don't apply it and you still see me as a threat simply for walking in the room as a black man, it doesn't matter. So as long as there's a willingness to learn, hey, take all the time you need as long as you're applying. There was an incident when I was in sixth grade and I was the only African-American in my class. And we were all on a bus back from the last day of school. It was a field trip we were taking uh, to an amusement park. And for some reason, the bus driver, you know, he gave me this weird energy when I got on the bus or whatever. But uh, there was a point where, you know, he might have thought I was standing up or whatever it may have been, but pulled the bus over on the side of the road, came and basically it, he was just attacking me in the sense that, you know, he was like, my job is to protect them. My job is to protect these kids. And, you know, you know, I'm what sixth grade scared. I see this huge burly white man just yelling at me at the top of his lungs, talking about how he needs to protect all of the other kids. But it wasn't until I got home, I realized the whole time he was saying, I need to protect them. I need to protect that. You know what I'm saying? And there was no sense of him protecting me. And that's when I realized, you know, it was like, and that's when I realized that my life was going to be different than everybody else's or anybody else who is white you know there's a shift from being a child and being innocent and i don't know where our society put it but it's a shift from being a child and black and innocent to just being a menace i feel i feel more threatened in a room of white people than i ever will in a room of black people because i it's hard to walk into any establishment and feel that everyone there's no one with my best interests at heart they would just have these notions that <laughs> that's who I was. And from that day forward, that's when I pushed to make sure no one ever thought that of me again. We're here to make a difference and a change, and we have to keep striving for a change any way we can. For me, it's music, right? I sang at the 10K Foundation for U.S. Bank Stadium for the march for uh, Black, uh, Black uh, Fourth of July, right? But that's my way of helping. That's how I can be at so my feeling even singing in a group or solo or whatever is I'm doing my part I'm doing what I can to to keep the movement going because this can't be another this can't be another we're hot for all of a month and then nothing and then it goes back to it's it's back to normal having a a shred of the strength of the communities that you're advocating for and standing with, having the strength to stand up then to those, you know, family members or other people that are in your circles or spheres of influence or whatnot, you know, having the strength to, to 
challenge them. It was very hard for me to see because I've had multiple run-ins with police officers just making sure that, you know, I'm not being disruptive um, throughout my life. You know what I'm saying? And it's funny because I asked my girlfriend yesterday, you know, how many times have you been pulled over in your life? And she said one time out of her 23 years, one time. And <laughs> and I, it was weird because I was like, just this year of year alone, I've probably been pulled over or had run in with the cops close to 10 times just this year alone, just this year alone. So it's crazy to just understand that things are different for each and every one of us. And I think now people understand what police brutality is. It doesn't matter what I do with the way I look, the way I carry myself. There, there are people out there that just see me as a certain, see a certain image of me. As Teresa mentioned before, Edgar is a founding member of the Black Male Empowerment Group at the University of Eau Claire. He's explained to me on many occasions the difficulties they faced in establishing this group and how hard they had to fight to maintain and legitimize their mission at the school. He illustrated these challenges in his conversation with Teresa. This was actually really recent, um, but like I said, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and um, we started an organization uh, my sophomore year called Black Male Empowerment, um, and our initiative was to essentially create a brotherhood a, a across the campus and have people understand what it was being black and change the perception of who they thought we were because obviously I went to a school that was 99% uh 99% white and you know it was hard being there because I got it was the first culture shock that I personally had you know coming there and it was hard for us to interact with people and when if one of if one of my black brothers did something wrong it came back on all of us. You know what I'm saying? So, and that, and that's when we decided to start the organization. And the reason we started it was because our coach who brought us into the university actually was killed in Chicago. It was a homicide. So we started it because of him. And, you know, uh, I, I, gra uh, after I graduated, there were five white football players that, happened to be in a group chat and were mocking the black male empowerment group and essentially put uh, a ton of pictures of the KKK and other things saying, come to our white male empowerment meeting. And, you know, they might've been making a joke, but that's not, that wasn't funny to us. You know what I'm saying? They're degrading something that we've spent so much time building. I was walking on campus and I see a family, I, I kid you not, it's like the nuclear, you know, I mean, man in a suit, wife, two kids, and they're, I'm, I'm guessing they're probably six, maybe seven, I'm guessing, I don't know. And I kid you not, as I'm walking towards them, right, they stop, <laughs> they look across the way, right? And as they're walking, they said, let me get away from this nigger monkey. I kid you not, and cross the street. I think I really took that to heart for a long time. It was just kind of a reality check, like, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter where I go, I'm gonna be seeing the same. We are all involved in this vicious cycle whether consciously perpetuating it or suffering at the hands of it. As soon as we enter this world, 
we are giving sets of preconceived ideas that inform our understanding of the world. Many of these can be wrong, harmful, and inaccurate ideas that have been created about groups we know nothing about to reinforce a history of oppression and violence. We act or don't act accordingly. This is what allows racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and transphobia to be sustained. We give life to these atrocious ideologies while the systems upheld by these ideologies take the lives of the people it tells us to fear. We are born into ignorance, but that doesn't mean that's where we should stay. I believe that our generation, the generation that we brought up, we understand this very well. You know what I'm saying? It's the older generation that we're trying to push towards you know, getting this way. And I think we'll be able to truly, completely eradicate racism as a whole because of the way that our generation thinks. That's the future I hope for. But if I'm being real, I know that we'll still be fighting for years, to, years to come. I think what irritates or frustrates me more than anything is the justification. It comes down to power. A man felt that he had the power to murder another individual, another human being, and get away. And I think that in and of itself is irritating because I think that when you, when you live in a system that benefits you, why would you give up your power? Of course you can justify it because it's not true. I drove through the city and like I just saw my, it looked like a war zone. I saw my city in shambles and it was so hard. But there was just this little light because I saw everybody in the city coming together to clean it up. And it brought me to tears just knowing that, you know, we care so much. Even, even you know, even when we destroy as humans, it's in our nature to build, you know, to rebuild. And it was really amazing to see that. And I think that's where we are in this aftermath is we're rebuilding. We're rebuilding not only our city, but we're rebuilding ourselves and we're rebuilding the idea of what it is to be an African-American. I think there's there's a breaking point for everybody. You know what I'm saying? And I think we just all reached that breaking point watching that eight minutes and 46 seconds of just no remorse, seeing that and knowing that that came from my home. It was so hard. But finally, we just said, we're not doing this again. We're not going through another 10 years, another hundred years, another. We're not going through another day of this. I know this sounds very like off topic, but I started building a desk. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm building it for this studio and I knew I would need one um, as I was looking through the different wood well at first I was like okay I want a red desk I know that shit seems whatever but it is and I started looking through the woods um, looking at the grains and I'm like oh that looks cool da 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 and then um, Poplar came up now if you have you ever heard the song Strange Fruit or the poem Strange Fruit well that that when I saw Papa, like something just kind of shifted in my soul. Like it, it wasn't, I'm not really a big crier. I, I just never have been. But I do, I do know when, when my soul is, is, is touched. And I saw Papa. And the first thing I did was, put, I, I actually have a picture saved of the poem. And it, it just, it hit me. And I was like, this is literally, like this was written years ago. Right? And it's still relevant.
I'm building this desk out of poplar and I burned the wood. It's a process called Shishiki Bond. Um, and I burned the wood and I dyed it red because that's what felt right in my soul. And I wanted to repurpose a dark history and create something new because that's where I make my difference. What do you hope for? I hope this is the spark that's going to ignite a fire that, you know, 100 years from now, we look at racism as something of the past, you know. I, I just think that it's a really interesting time to be alive. And I, I'm enjoying watching our culture shift into like a, at least a semi greater understanding of what human rights are. And I hope that this like spills over into, you know, issues abroad, issues, you know, in Palestine and Kurdistan, in Algeria, in Spain, like everywhere. And I, I think that this is, it's a really, it's a really exciting time. It's just a mix of anger and passion and even in, in, in the midst of all the fucking foolishness, like I really pray that this is a time for growth because this has been a very uncomfortable year. But where there's discomfort comes growth. And I'm 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 praying and praying that all this discomfort, all this tension, all this maliciousness, all this all this writhing and, and all this pain, I, I really do hope that good comes of it. Strange fruit. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastoral scene of the gallant south. The bulging eyes and the twisted mouth. Scent of magnolia sweet and fresh. And the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck. For the rain to gather and the wind to suck. For the sun to rot. For a tree to drop. Here's a strange and bitter crop.